0: This is The Great Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what is going on in the world that can impact your health. Welcome back. This week we're gonna be talking about spin, specifically scientific spin. It's a story that began with big tobacco and how other industries have learned the strategies of disinformation and obfuscation that keep the public from learning the truth about products and ingredients and environmental hazards of all kinds. It's about emerging science and the battle to keep it quiet. That story and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week?
1: Okay, um, actually, some good news, and I'm going to start with that. Good. It's always good to start with the good news. It All is. right. What do you um, got? This is from CNN, and it is called California Bands Red Dye Number Three. Really? Yeah. Cool. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a landmark law banning red dye number three and other potentially harmful food additives and consumer goods. The Golden State becomes the first in the country to forbid the use of the ingredients found in many popular candies, drinks, and more. Mm. Also known as the California Food Safety Act, Assembly Bill 418 prohibits the manufacture, sale, or distribution of food products in California containing red dye number three, potassium bromate, brominated vegetable oil, and, and propylparaben. Potassium bromate is added to baked goods to help dough strengthen and rise higher. In some beverages, brominated vegetable oil emulsifies a citrus flavoring, preventing separation. And propyl parabens are used for antimicrobial food preservation. Do
0: you think people have any idea what they're they drinking? They have no idea. They have <laughs> really? no idea. Holy yeah. cow. Okay.
1: Nearly 3,000 products use red dye number three as an ingredient, including sweets such as Skittles, Nerds and trolley gummies, protein shakes, instant rice and potato products, and boxed cake mixes. Hmm. Newsom's move brings the United States slightly closer to a food environment like that of the EU, where these chemicals are banned due to scientific studies that have demonstrated significant public health harms, including increased risk of cancer, behavioral issues in children, Mm. harm to the reproductive system, and damage to the immune system. The California bill won't be implemented until 2027, significant time for brands to revise their recipes to avoid these harmful chemicals. The National Confectioners Association, a trade organization based in Washington, D.C., said in a statement that Newsom's approval of this bill will undermine consumer confidence uh-huh. and create confusion around food safety <laughs> by acting independently of the FDA and called on the FDA to weigh in on the topic.
0: This is so perfect for today's show. Isn't it? It's, it's yeah, perfect. It's great.
1: Currently in the U.S., these chemicals can be used in foods because of a loophole in the FDA's Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act that's known as the Generally Recognized as Safe or GRASS rule, which allows manufacturers to use the ingredients in a way or amount the FDA has previously determined to be safe. Because of the size of California's economy, this groundbreaking law may affect food across the country, not just in California. So all Americans will likely benefit from the ban. Until then, if you want to avoid consuming red dye number three for foods, you can check ingredients lists for FD&C red number three. And for medications, medications look for dyes in the inactive ingredients section. There are a lot of red pills out there.
0: And they're just putting in the dye to make it red? For no particular reason. Certainly not part of the medication itself. And it causes itself. cancer. Well, good for California. You know, California, <laughs> yeah. I've I, on a I lot signed, of I,
1: I signed a kabillion letters on this, and organizational sign-ons as well, on this yeah. Food Act. It's really important, and it was a great, great bill to get yeah. passed, because good. you've basically opened the door. And consumers are going to begin to think, what?
0: Interesting that the states are now doing this because the federal government, federal just, government just, just can't is, do it. They just can't on, find it. on the job. Yep. They just can't yep. break free of industry pressure. That's right. Crazy. That's All right. right. What else you got?
1: Okay, well, here's a quick one, and it's, it's really kind of important. I mean, we even had this in our own family where I was, like, screaming at my kids to get rid of their plastic cutting boards. But anyway, this is from WTOP.com, and it's called Microplastics, the secret ingredient your cutting board is adding to your meals. <laughs> oh, when you go home and start cooking dinner for your family, you may want to use a wooden cutting board to cut those veggies rather than a plastic one. New study shows those types of cutting boards are likely to shed microplastics that can be harmful to your health. A recent study from South Dakota State University published with the American Chemical Society showed that on the upper end of the scale, plastic boards shed the equivalent to the mass of 10 red solo cups worth of microplastics over the course of a year. You know what I'm talking about, those red plastic cups. Yeah, For the study called Cutting Boards, an Overlooked Source of Microplastics in Human Food, researchers chopped carrots on both polyethylene and polypropylene boards. Then they washed the vegetables and used tiny filters to determine how many plastic particles were stuck to the food. (laughs) Researchers found that per chop, you are getting anywhere from one to a dozen microplastic particles stuck to those otherwise healthy vegetables. Not nearly as tasty as that garlic or onion going into your soup. If you use that board daily, researchers estimate that you could ingest around 7 grams to 50 grams of microplastic from a polyethylene chopping board and around 50 grams of microplastics from a polypropylene chopping board. The average red solo cup is about 5 grams.
0: So the more healthy food you make in a kitchen with a with a plastic cutting board, and the more cutting you do of onions and carrots, you know, green peppers celery, and carrots, peppers, yeah and name the, it. the more plastic you're eating,
1: that's correct. Use
0: wooden cutting boards. It's amazing. People use them all the time. wood is harmless. I notice our kitchen only has wooden cutting boards. That's correct, yeah. We right.
1: actually have one marble one. We do. Yeah, but it's so heavy.
0: <laughs> Don't drop it.
1: <laughs> I know. okay.
0: All right, Patty, cool. What else you got?
1: All right. Um, And then what you need to know about endocrine disrupting chemicals. This is from Environmental Health News written by Allison Guy. Endocrine disrupting chemicals, also known as EDCs, are natural or human-made substances that interfere with the healthy functioning of the body's endocrine system. The endocrine system is made up of glands throughout the body along with the hormones that these glands produce and receptors that respond to the hormones. Endocrine glands include the pituitary, thymus, pancreas, and adrenals. Hormones act like messengers traveling through the body to deliver instructions that control biological processes ranging from growth and development to sleep, digestion, and childbirth. Humans have more than 50 hormones. These include estrogen and testosterone, which help to control sexual development, as well as feel-good hormones, including serotonin, endorphins, and oxytocin. Endocrine-disrupting chemicals change how the endocrine system works. Some EDCs are chemically similar to our hormones and mimic their effects in the body. Others block the action of hormones, increase or decrease their levels, or affect how the body responds. And because the endocrine system is extremely sensitive, this is an important fact. Mm-hmm. Endocrine disruptors can be hazardous in tiny amounts, such as one part per trillion, the equivalent of one drop of water in 20 Olympic-sized <laughs> swimming pools. Oh, wow. EDCs include human made chemicals such as BPA and PCBs, as well as lead, cadmium, and other toxic heavy metals. These substances are found in thousands of household and industrial products pesticides and herbicides, paints and sealants, plastic, cookware, fragrances, antibacterial soaps, cosmetics and personal care products, electronics, medical supplies, clothing, and furniture. They're they're
0: in everything, these chemicals.
1: And then flame retardants is another big category of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and they are found in upholstered furniture. Many baby products, right? Because you wanna put your kids in something where they're you know, spilling or spitting up on something and that yeah. you can just wipe them clean. Yeah. So they're, yeah, stain resistant, yeah. especially car seats. The harms are incredible. Reproductive system harms, you know, genital malformations, cancers of reproductive organs, early female puberty, low sperm counts, also inflammatory and chronic diseases, including obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disorders, allergies, and asthma, and then harm to the brain and nervous system, lower IQ, memory and attention deficits, developmental delays, depression, neurogenerative disorders such as Parkinson's. It's crazy. And they can also alter the DNA in our cells. Research into the health effects of EDCs is far from complete. Many big questions remain. Every day the average person is exposed to hundreds of thousands of different kinds Mm -hmm. of chemicals in unknown quantities. And how many of these affect our endocrine system? Do these chemicals interact with one another and create new hazards? And how do endocrine disruptors interact with other health risk factors such as genetics, age, and diet? We don't. No.
0: I remember years ago there was a program called, I think it was a Bill Moyers program called uh, Fooling Around with Nature. Right. Or Fooling with Nature, maybe it's called. All about this business of the incredibly delicate system that's in your body that regulates all these functions. And these chemicals that we're putting in products get in there. Your body confuses a real estrogen with a fake estrogen or a a xenoestrogen, as they call it and and all of a sudden your body is behaving in a way that it's not supposed to. Right. And causing, you know, disease and and malfunction of your body in a way that people will never guess it was because of, you know, something they ate or because of something that they bought. They would, you know, you figure that things you buy in the store have to be safe.
1: Or the car seat that your infant was sleeping against, right? Yeah. And, you know, and just, you know, kind of sucking in the I, don't, I can't tell. I can't I don't talk know. about it. The
0: idea that. that the government is just kind of sitting there and, you know, watching this go on is just in, incredible to me. All right. Thanks, Patty.
1: You're welcome. What can you really believe? How do you know something is true or not? There has always been spin, of course, but now it seems that almost everything we hear or read is spin. We think of spin mostly in political terms, But what if it threatened your life? When companies intentionally mislead the public about the safety of their products, it's not just spin, it's a crime.
0: Day after day, week after week and month after month, research scientists in laboratories around the world piece together tiny bits of information in an effort to advance our understanding of the world. Sometimes what scientists discover is that something we originally thought was good turns out not to be as good as we thought. And that means that something some company is making or doing is actually harmful to our safety or our health in a way we didn't understand before. What happens next is critical. How does the public learn about this discovery? Who informs them and how? Who spins the story to their advantage and how do they do it?
2: For many years, I've been teaching an environmental health course at University of Massachusetts Amherst that focuses on understanding various case studies where industries or organizations have taken scientific information and warped it. And so the tobacco industry is, again, the most famous one of those where they wrote a playbook of what they could do as a way to confuse the public or use doubt as a way to misinform the public. And they got very good at it.
0: That's Dr. Laura Vandenberg, Associate Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs and Associate Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and one of the world's leading authorities on endocrine disrupting chemicals and hazard assessment. Her recent study is called The Science of Spin, Targeted Strategies to Manufacture Doubt with Detrimental Effects on Environmental and Public Health.
2: I'm actually a research scientist, and I've been working for about 15 years to study the effects of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So those are chemicals that interfere with the way that hormones act in the body. And I've been studying the effects of those endocrine disruptors on outcomes that are relevant to women's health. So a lot of my work is actually done in the lab, but I also spend about half of my research time really trying to understand how different groups and agencies and organizations use data to make decisions that are meant to be protective for public health. So, like, why does the EPA do and say what it does about endocrine disruptors And why does that differ from what academics and advocates often feel is the case for data around endocrine disruptors? So where's that disconnect coming and how can we fix it? In the lab, I can go in and I can sort of dissect the the fine points of biology. Like how do our bodies actually work? Which as a trained biologist, that's what I'm fascinated by. Like think about one of the most amazing sort of miracles of science is that we all start as a single cell. And yet our bodies for the most part end up where everything is in the right place and it's all there at the right time. Like that's we think of it sort of as a miracle cuz it kind of is, but To study the biology of how that happens is it's an amazing privilege to be able to to look at that kind of level in the lab. And I love that part. But the part, the the science that I do that's outside of the lab to try to understand information, decision making, risk and hazards, that's the stuff that actually sort of moves the needle the most in, in the life of a regular person. So how do we protect people from hazards in their environment? that they don't even realize are there.
1: So how does the public become aware of emerging scientific issues? We're so busy these days and there's so much news to be aware of. There are also so many sources of news from podcasts and webcasts to email blasts, texts, and even traditional radio and television broadcasts. With all these sources, you would think that figuring out what was true and what was spin would be easy. But you would be wrong.
2: In the world of public health, of of things that affect the public's health, I think a lot of the best lessons we can learn is actually from tobacco and cigarettes, um, where today no one reasonably disputes that smoking cigarettes causes lung cancer and a whole host of other um, chronic health problems for smokers. But there's still this big machinery out there of disinformation. And really, in, in my lifetime, in my adult lifetime, we've continued to see some of that machinery at work. So, you know, in, in 2001, I think it was, Mike Pence, who ultimately became the vice president of the United States, wrote a blog basically saying smoking doesn't kill because not every smoker dies. Right, like, and that's that's such a strange argument to make, and yet it's an effective one at tweaking the public's view of the data, of the evidence that actually links smoking to serious public health harm, right? And not everyone who smokes will die from smoking. But does that mean that we should not worry about smoking? that's a, that's a that's not an argument that from a public health perspective holds much water.
0: The disinformation industry is strong and powerful and is busy every day working to convince Americans that the bad news they may have heard about a product or ingredient or a drug is not really true, that there's some level of equivocation in the scientific community about the veracity of the findings.
2: Part of this is a relatively modern idea of everyone can do research. And I actually believe that it is the lovely part of creating a democratic access to scientific information, Um, this push to have more scientists publish their work in an open access format. So everyone can go and actually read the scientific studies. But most people don't choose to go read scientific studies. They still use you know, the analysis that's published by the mainstream media or the analysis that's published on a blog. And so they don't go look at the actual data. They don't even feel comfortable going and looking at the actual data. So they'll take someone else's word for it for what that data say. And so right back to this Mike Pence example, he's correct in saying, you know, that uh, only one out of nine smokers will actually die from lung cancer, something like that. So that means eight out of nine are totally fine. The data are correct but that's a tiny snapshot of all of the data that we have about the other health effects of smoking, right? And it also doesn't look at one out of nine, compare that to if no one was smoking, how many would actually die from lung cancer? Because it's not zero, but it's not one out of nine. And so the discussion of science becomes a discussion of celebrity. And this is actually a tactic that we've seen that industry has used is it was discussed in in documents that were released from the BPA industry, an industry that, um, a chemical that I've studied, so an industry that I've followed, where in their documents they talked about trying to get famous people to talk about the benefits of BPA in their lives, right? So if we can get a celebrity, you know, a movie star, to talk about how great it is to have a polycarbonate baby bottle, that's good enough to convince people that it's safe. We've sort of twisted this, who's, whose opinion really matters? Um, and I think that that's a very slippery slope.
1: Dr. Vandenberg and her colleagues decided to look a little deeper into the industries that were heavily engaged in disinformation and analyze the specific strategies they were using to sow doubt about the science. If you're a regular listener to Green Street News, what they found probably won't surprise you.
2: The five industries that we picked, um, we started with tobacco, since it's the most commonly discussed across public health. We also looked at the coal industry and what it had done to manufacture doubt about the harm of exposure to coal and coal dust on black lung disease in its own employees. We looked at sugar industries because um, there's several really excellent books that have described the kind of scientific studies that were done by organizations that were paid by sugar industry and then by others that demonstrated that exposure to sugar, um, refined sugar, would increase risk for cardiovascular disease. And the sugar industry utilized that information to instead cast Blame or doubt on high-fat diet, and to hide the impact of sugar on human health. Uh, the fourth industry was the agrochemical producer of the chemical atrazine. This is a, a pesticide that, that's used to control weeds and it's an endocrine disruptor. And really, this is an example of an industry that or a company that went after a single person. Um, and, And that's the story of Dr. Tyrone Hayes, where his evidence and his data were really showing that atrazine caused harm specifically to amphibians. And they targeted him personally. And then the last is the example of the Marshall Institute, which was a post-Cold War um, institute that had to pivot from work focused on on the Cold War. Which uh, after the Cold War ended, the institute didn't want to disband. The people who were associated with that institute enjoyed having a closeness to the the federal government, and so they pivoted and became an institute that was focused on climate change, but really on Spelling any research or any knowledge about climate change, any acknowledgement of climate change at the level of the federal government. And they took a lot of money from um, multinational companies. So, so these are very different examples. And so it's almost insane to think that you could look across these five different industries or groups and learn something from them. And yet what we found is that across these five organizations or groups, Um, There were 28 unique tactics that were used by these organizations to either try to combat known scientific facts or or knowledge or evidence. So they were working to counter scientific knowledge that was damaging to their profits or to their um, place And then there were other tactics that were used to promote narratives that were favorable um, to the industry. And so 28 unique tactics were identified across these five um, industries. But five of those 28 were used by all five of the organizations. Clearly these are strategies because they work across these five very different kinds of organizations, it sort of implies that they're very productive. They're very seductive, right? They, they allow an industry to promote their agenda.
0: So five techniques really stood out as being the most effective strategies that companies could use to cast doubt on scientific studies that were unfavorable to their product or service. Dr. Laura Vandenberg goes through them one at a time.
2: So the first one is to attack the study design of any study that was used to produce information that suggests harm from their industry. In this example, it would be the very first studies that showed that tobacco was associated with increased risk for cancer. Well, an association doesn't mean that it's causing that. So, you know, that's an easy way to sort of start to attack the study um, and to attack the, the way that the data were collected. And I say this with all of the acknowledgement that a scientist should have, that no study is perfect. You can always attack a study. But these are attacks that are done really for the purpose of poking holes in, in evidence. The second tactic is to recruit individuals who are considered reputable individuals to defend information that is supportive of the industry. So the Mike Pence example that I gave earlier, where Mike Pence writes an editorial that's in defense of the tobacco industry. That's a great example of a person who's considered a reputable individual, even though he has no scientific credentials, right? He's, he's a person who is well known to that community. The third one is just misrepresenting the evidence that is produced. So, you know, when you discuss studies that suggest that your product is harmful, you can twist and turn those. And if a scientist like me does that, I lose my reputation, I lose my ability to continue publishing, I lose my ability to get future funding for future studies, I lose my career. But if someone does that and they're paid by the chemical organization afterwards, they're like, oh, sorry, I was wrong. There's no downward pressure to be truthful. And so they can get away with this misrepresentation. The next one is to employ hyperbolic language. Some of what we've seen are terms that were created by the industry that now pervade scientific discourse, which is really frustrating. I'm going to give you an example. The term sound science. The whole idea of sound science versus junk science, that was created by the tobacco industry. And now we see books that are published, often by folks who have been paid by the tobacco industry, that use these terms, junk science, right? It's my job as a crusader to root out junk science. Well, what's junk science to them? It's science that highlights problems with pesticides or with air pollution or with endocrine disruptors. What's sound science? It's the science that's been done by the industry. Fifth is actually influence government agencies or laws. We've seen this with the fossil fuel industry influencing laws and, and regulations. Is CO2 a pollutant or not? That, that's an actual argument, is, is CO2 a pollutant? We saw this with the producers of atrazine. They were very closely interacting with scientists at the EPA. And I've seen this in my own research with some of the documents that were released through Freedom Information Act requests from reporters to the FDA that, about BPA, that this is an example where the industry has a very close relationship with regulators that what you could see is a new study would come out and the regulators would write to the American Chemistry Council. How should we talk about this study? We're taught in school, do your science, stick to the science, let other people do the translation for the public. But then we get back to the idea of, okay, who's gonna do that translating? If industry's doing the translating, they misrepresent the data or they trash the study as a way to dismiss the results that you find. So again, an extremely effective tactic because you get to marginalize the person and then you get to marginalize the result and then you get to marginalize any future study that comes from that sort of field.
0: Dr. Laura Vandenberg, Associate Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs and Associate Professor at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and author of a study titled The Science of Spin, Targeted Strategies to Manufacture Doubt with Detrimental Effects on Environmental and Public Health. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Laura Vandenberg, our news editor, Alan Weiniger our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.